Something was rotten in the state of Irish politics in the 1980s and 90s. It seems that there was widespread corruption, with businessmen and property developers offering bribes to politicians so that they could get land rezoned, for instance. In this episode of Legally Fond, we look at the Mahan Tribunal, an investigation which spanned 15 years, considered serious allegations made about payments to senior politicians, and marked an undignified end to many politicians' careers. Welcome to Legally Fond. Welcome to Season 3 of Legally Fond, in association with LawSchool.ie. LawSchool.ie is Ireland's leading provider of tuition for the FE1 or King's Inns entrance exams, each course is delivered live online with a specific exam focus and supported by the latest manuals. Shorter pre-recorded workshops are also available. Courses commence in June and November and you can register anytime at lawschool.ie. For the duration of this season, we're giving away a free subject course worth €355, Euro, which can be used for any FE1 or King's Inns prep course subject with lawschool.ie. For your chance to win that, head to our Instagram. It's legally underscore fond. And how would you like a discount on a legal textbook? Just head to the Claris Press website and use the discount code LEGALLYFOND for 10% off. We're also going to announce the winner of our contract law textbook with thanks to Claris Press later on in the episode. So throughout the 90s and 2000s in Ireland, we had a series of tribunals of inquiry, which were these long-running very, very costly exercises to hold politicians and, in some cases, business people accountable for their actions. They ranged on topics from the beef industry, Larry Goodman, who was a beef baron in Ireland, who very much still is big in the beef industry, and whether or not there was illegal assistance going to the beef industry at the time, to the awarding of telephone licenses to Dennis O'Brien, to Payments to politicians uh, so that politicians would grant property developers rezoning of lands when the country was going through an economic boom and property prices were exploding. So what exactly are tribunals? Why were they set up? Are they the best way to deal with these national scandals? And just how corrupt were politicians in Ireland in the 90s and 2000s? We'll find that out on this episode of Legally Fought. Tribunals have been used for all sorts of things, as I mentioned, whether it was the beef industry, whether it was an awarding of a telephone license, whether it was a disaster like the Stardust fire in the 80s where a tribunal was set up to establish the facts. There's a few reasons they're set up. They're used to find out what exactly happened, like you would do in a course. You'd find out what were the facts to learn from what happened, make some recommendations so that the event doesn't occur again. Uh, establish some kind of accountability and blame, and often for political considerations. If uh, it's a political issue that is the subject of a, a tribunal or an investigation, politicians, instead of having it looming over them and them being questioned about it in the dole the whole time, they can uh, ask a tribunal to consider the question, and the tribunal's verdict will generally be considered, you know, the ultimate recollection of what actually happened and when it happened etc what do you think about these instruments of tribunals because they're not courts they're these a way of investigating something that happened outside a courtroom it's an investigation really and i guess um so they obviously can't charge anybody uh with a crime they don't really have powers to punish you but they also don't offer the same protections as uh like somebody's accused of a crime and it's that kind of I guess you could say it's a useful halfway house because we want to know the facts. We want to like be able to ask these types of questions, but it may not be enough to prove beyond a reasonable doubt, but you can at the very least 
uh, get some idea of what was going on. Yeah, and look, one of the issues with um, normal court cases is um, is a causal one, a temporal one, whereby uh, a crime may have been committed years ago and then will only come before the courts um, years later. And, and there's an issue regarding recollection of witnesses and the reliability of their statements there. And I think one of the, the, the main tribunals that we're going to discuss today, the Matten Tribunal, originally set up in 1997, such was uh, the length of, of duration for which it was operating that the, the name changed because um, Justice Flood, who was initially in charge, but retired in 2003, having submitted three interim reports. And this is really only the beginning of it and subsequently evolved into the Matten Tribunal. You had witnesses who died during the course of proceedings. Um, you had people recalling events that happened 20, 30 years ago. By their very nature, they are politicised. These are people who are coming forward with a motive or indeed an agenda, perhaps, to damage politicians or to damage certain industries. Not saying, of course, that politicians are devoid of blame. And I very much agree with the, with the findings of the Matten Tribunal. And, and, and I think as well there, there was a lot that, um, that in the court of public opinion was, was found to be true, but uh, on, on the basis of the evidence that was presented couldn't actually be categorically said to be true. But um, that, that certainly is a concern that... Is this just politics in, a, in another form? Is this giving a platform to people to peddle their version of events and kind of ultimately get away with what they did and rewrite history? The two crucial differences between tribunals and courts are, as Alex mentioned, they can't make findings of civil or criminal liability like a court can. They can't say someone is guilty or not guilty. And also, they are what's known as inquisitorial as opposed to adversarial. So the Irish common law system is an adversarial system. If you go into court, you and you are accused of committing a crime, you'll generally have a barrister or lawyer acting on your side and the prosecution, i.e. the state, will also have a barrister acting on their side and their barrister will ask you questions in a process that's known as cross-examination and your barrister will ask questions of the witnesses who are alleging that you committed whatever the crime is. So there's this kind of back and forth trying to tease out each other's stories, trying to poke holes in the stories of the defense of the prosecution from opposite sides of the courtroom. In tribunals, it's different. The judge, who is the chairperson of the tribunal, and they are actually judges who get seconded from the courts to run the tribunals, they're the ones who are questioning, questioning the witnesses, and they're the ones who are making the verdict. And there's no jury like there would be in a criminal court case. What, what do we think of this? Because they actually have an inquisitorial system for all qu- kinds of criminal cases uh, on the continent in, in countries like France and Germany. They don't have juries. They don't have cross-examination. This is how they deal with all kind of, kinds of things in court. There's definitely more of a danger when there's actually a criminal penalty, criminal penalty at stake um, or civil liability, then the adversarial system does benefit an accused more because you get, you get more protection. You're allowed to fight your corner. Whereas in an inquisitorial system, you don't. You don't, like they're kind of uh, the state will appoint investigators. The state will appoint uh, a lawyer to represent you, but they're not really representing you. They're representing the state. And as you know, healthy skepticism of authority is uh, always needed, and that can lead to injustices. Yeah, but but also in, in terms of the the merits of the civil law system, um, you know. It, look, we've seen from depictions in television and media, um, it is primarily the common law legal system which is those, which is on show, uh, be it in America, be it um, the the um, 
in, in Great Britain um, because it's, it's theatre. And you see these uh, wonderfully erudite barristers who can twist and manipulate juries um, or indeed evidence to their favour and advance a certain narrative. There isn't that capacity uh, as much in, in civil law um, jurisdictions and much the same in the tribunal because it is inquisitorial as opposed to adversarial. The facts are very much taken at much more of a face value level as opposed to having them subject to manipulation or suggestion um, by barristers who can who can spin things in a certain way. Sure. Uh, let's talk about the Flood and Mahan Tribunal. Now, this was... This is probably the longest running tribunal we've ever had in the state. There were hundreds of witnesses. The public hearings went on for over a thousand days. It cost altogether, I think, after all the third party costs were accounted for, somewhere between 250 and 300 million euros. Uh, a great time to be a lawyer, I believe. There was, there was plenty of lucrative work involved in the tribunal. There were a couple of interesting events that led up to the tribunal being founded. So in the mid-90s, there was this suspicion that there was widespread corruption among politicians, particularly councillors in Dublin City Council, and then a few senior politicians who were ministers at the time. So there were whispers of this. And then we saw a few signs of it when uh, a councillor called Trevor Sargent, he was a Green Party councillor, he stood up in a South Dublin County Council meeting and held up a cheque at the time. And he said, I was handed this by a property developer asking me to vote a certain way, to rezone lands. In other words, to vote on whether lands could get planning permission to, to for residential or commercial use to make them a lot more valuable. And he said, you know, this is, this is corruption in action. This is someone attempting to bribe me. So we had that. Then we had two prominent campaigners, one of whom was a barrister and one of whom was an environmentalist, put an ad in the back of the Irish Times saying... Please come forward if you know anything about um, corruption to do with planning decisions in Dublin City Council and we'll give a £10,000 reward to people who come forward. So that led to this guy called James Gogarty coming forward. James Gogarty was an engineer. He worked for a construction company at the time. He seemed to have a personal vendetta for whatever reason against his employer. Uh, But he had... um, I wonder what that's like, Pierce. (laughs) Uh, He had witnessed a bribe of £30,000 being paid to uh, Minister Ray Burke, who was a minister in government at the time. And Gogarty famously asked the developer paying the bribe, uh, will he get a receipt? And he was told, will we fuck? (laughs) Uh, So that was the kind of attitude at the time. So these were the, the, the examples of stories that were coming out. Were these just hearsay? Were these just isolated incidents? Well, the government at the time wasn't sure, so they set up the Tribunal of Inquiry to see, was this endemic in the planning system? <laughs> the government at the time was being <laughs> The government, yeah. Bertie O'Hearn set up the Flood Tribunal, which subsequently became the Mahan Tribunal, which investigated his Him. own financial irregularities. Famously, the headlines around the world, the finance minister without the bank account. There's, There's nothing, nothing in, in the, the Constitution, Constitution that says you have to have a bank account <laughs> as minister for finance. So, um, so, yeah, it was, I mean, it's... it's um, institutionalized corruption within the, the Fianna Fáil party, um, certainly. Basically, uh, Ray Burke, who was a minister, had received £290,000 in corrupt payments. George Redmond, who wasn't even a politician, he was just a, an official working in the planning, uh, in, in Dublin City Council, in the planning area. He was sentenced to jail for corruption. He uh, had to make a tax settlement of £1 million. He was arrested in 1999 on the way back from the Isle of Man, 
with something like 300,000 Irish pounds in his suitcase. Uh, Frank Dunlop uh, spent 18 months in jail after the tribunal for corruption. P. Flynn, who was a European commissioner around the time, uh, got £50,000 from a property developer which he used to buy a farm for his in his wife's name. There were 11 councillors in Dublin who were uh, found for found to have uh, received corrupt payments. Like, this was everywhere. In and this is only what they know about. Exactly. There, yes. there yeah. is so much that will never be known, mm. I'd say, unless somebody writes a book after the statute of limitations has passed. Yeah, and look, the the arrogance and and uh, sense of um, uh, sense of being above the law and being untouchable is patent, uh, patently clear in the um, the infamous interview by Podrick Flynn with Gay Byrne on the Late Late Show and the Try It Sometime interview, uh, which actually spurred the individual Tom Gilmartin, the developer who who was in London at the time, who lodged that that fifty thousand pounds in the customs house, which with with which P Flynn subsequently bought a farm in Mayo. In and his wife's name. Tom Gilmartin, just to be clear, said he was ma- he was donating to Fianna Fáil party, which you're perfectly entitled to. Absolutely. But P. Flynn took that and used it for his Yes, and... Um, just, just tell people about this interview. It's a rather extraordinary interview. This is the late 90s. Gay Byrne is presenting the Late Late Show. P. Flynn, who's a, a rather well-liked, jovial, uh, likeable European commissioner, is back in Dublin... He comes on to do a nice light Friday evening interview on the chat show. And this is just before the tribunal is uh, about to investigate allegations relating to him. What yes. does he say? Well, at the time, there was actually an issue within the commission, which was a European issue regarding um, misconduct of one uh, European commissioner and whether uh, that individual commissioner could be fired or the entire commission would have to go. And subsequently, they, they did all have to go. But... Um, Gay Byrne, in a fantastically researched and, and meticulous uh, interview style, as is his hallmark, um, essentially gave P. Flynn enough rope to hang himself on. And uh, P. Flynn was seen very relaxed on The Late Late Show, and a journalist in the audience asked him questions regarding his remuneration package. I get, give or take, it works out at about with expenses 140,000 a year and I pay 30.3% tax on that so it's about a net 100,000 and out of that 100,000 I run a home in Dublin, Castle Bar and Brussels. I want to tell you something try it sometime when you've got the cars and and three houses and three homes and a few housekeepers and I want to tell you and everything else but remember it's a well-paid job. This is also I feel like we don't really appreciate it as much this is Ireland before the boom you know, this was very much like we weren't quite as poor as we were in the 50s and 60s. But we were still a poor country. Like we hadn't joined the euro. This was a, you know, it was a very different time. Like this wasn't a kind of, you know, boom, building the convention center and stuff. This was like he was speaking to a poorer country. Just incredibly out of touch. Absolutely. It's it's complaining about perhaps, you know, I have to limit myself to only three or four bottles of the finest champagne every evening. You know, it's a very difficult lifestyle that I'm I'm landed with here. And um, what happened then was Gay Byrne um, gently prodded on the issue regarding um, the the upcoming uh, verdict of the Flood Tribunal and the suggestion that P. Flynn had taken 
money uh, illicitly and illegally for political favours in planning and rezoning. And P. Flynn said categorically and very clearly that he had never taken money from anybody. And the question of Tom Gilmartin's uh, suggestion that he had in fact done exactly that and was lying was brought up. And P. Flynn said um, he was aware of the man. He said he made a lot of money out in London. He came back to do a bit of business in Ireland. Didn't work out for him. Uh, He's not well. His wife isn't well. He's out of sorts. He tried to discredit this guy. Essentially. Trying to say he's a bit loopers. He's a bit loony. He's a bit peed off about the fact that uh, he tried to do business back over in Ireland and didn't work out for him. And because of that, he has a vendetta. And Tom Gilmartin over in London was watching The Late Late Show with his wife and was enraged and furious that P. Flynn would would come on the national airwaves and and be so arrogant and dismissive in in his attitude to what were factual events. So Tom Gilmartin got the first flight back over to Dublin, knocked on Justice Flood's door and said, I will testify to the effect of what I have said and I will give evidence at the tribunal. And that evidence led to... The ending of Podrick Flynn's career, as essentially his political career, but led, ended, led the to criminal he stepped con- on onto the Late Late Show set that night. This tribunal did lead to jail time for some people. There were people who were uh, jailed numerous times for contempt of court and refusing to answer questions. Not everything came out. Like the scale of political corruption in Ireland will probably never be known. I think it is, like it is useful. Like we're talking about it today. It's a piece of Irish history and a time in Irish history that was. So bizarre. But it's recent enough history. And Alan Mahan, who was the judge who was chairing the tribunal for most of its operation, said corruption had ceased to become an isolated event and it became so entrenched that it transformed into an acknowledged way of doing business. And when you have a situation in, in, in your country where you cannot get planning permission unless you bribe a politician... Uh, there is something seriously, seriously wrong. I mean, that's that's the kind of carry-on you get in developing countries without proper rule of law, without proper institutions. And it had the potential to do terrible reputational damage for Ireland internationally as well. Would big American international companies want to come here thinking, oh, we're going to have to bribe politicians in order to uh, set up our base here? Yeah, corruption really damages uh, like a wider economy and it it stops the kind of, I guess, you know, the freedom to set up your own business, the freedom to do anything. And meritocracy. It's not the best business people or the people with the best business ideas uh, that are the, uh, ultimately successful. It's those who the people have the right the connections most money and, and the people, people with the most money yeah. who are willing to bribe those in power. So two big recommendations came out of the Mahan Tribunal. First, that there be a register of lobbyists, which there is now. You can go to a website called lobbying.ie. You can see the list of anyone who is registered to uh, as a lobbyist and you can see all the times they met with various state officials and the subjects that they discussed which is which is really beneficial in the UK they still don't have that and there's ongoing controversy about David Cameron and his lobbying for this Australian financial company since he he stepped down and the second recommendation is that Oroctus members who were found to be uh, in breach of the ethics acts in terms of a conflict of interest, should be subject to a criminal prosecution. Some people did go to jail out of this. Everyone's reputation was tarnished out of this, but you still see people like Bertie Ahern, Ahern 
who had some adverse findings made against them and who are still in the media and don't really like getting questioned about this. Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, the, the Mahan Tribunal did, found, uh, did find that uh, Bertie Hearn hadn't fully, truthfully accounted for certain lodgements of over £165,000. He didn't have a various, bank account. Various forms, accounts linked to him. My apologies, you're, you're quite correct. The famous Manchester dinner with uh, Irish businessmen where... Uh, £25,000 appeared in an account linked to Bertie O'Hearn that that it was, uh, that he he cast as a gift or a dig out that he was in financial difficulty at the time. Because he was separating from his wife. Yes, and living above um, the St. Luke's uh, office out in Drumcondra. And of course, there was the famous uh, tearful interview, I believe, with with Brian Dobson. The difference of talking about somebody taking millions and somebody taking hundreds of thousands um, in exchange for contracts and other matters and taking what is relatively small contributions um, from friends who had a clear understanding to were paid back. I, I do not equate those. Uh, my advice is I've, I've broken absolutely um, no codes, uh, ethical, tax, legal or otherwise. At the same time, the tribunal did find that um, former Taoiseach Bertie Hearn and Albert Reynolds were aware of the payments that uh, P. Flynn was siphoning off to purchase property. But again, it's not, exact, it's not exactly surprising when you had, you know, Charlie Hawhey before them wearing Charvet shirts and uh, tailored Savaro suits. And telling and, us to tighten our belts in the process. Yeah, exactly. Like, But Ireland was a developing country for most of the latter half of the 20th century. I think it's also important to contextualise this within the the complacency and the complicit nature of other institutions as well in Ireland. Famously, when Charles Hawhey became Taoiseach, hundreds of thousands of pounds of personal debt were written off by Bank of Ireland and various other Irish banks as a gesture of goodwill to the incoming Taoiseach. Um, That's not something that should be happening in, in, in a modern Western democracy. Okay, it's not Problem, something that should like, be happening Ireland anywhere. Is, Ireland is still very small. It, it was it, even smaller back then. Yes, but it, it, it shows how when there was a kickback and when there were favours being given, to borrow the phrase of, of the late Brian Lenehan, we all partied. And many, many people were aware of what was going and either turned a blind eye or actively participated in it to, to have some skin in the game or get, get a slice of the pie. The former Taoiseach, while he was Minister of Finance, didn't have a bank account... And said that, you know, accounted for money that he had, that he wanted on the horses. Like, this is insanity. And even today, he's still, as you said, he's on Sky News. Everybody loves him. Like, it's going to be him versus Andy Kenny for the next presidency. It is, I just think it's insane. Well, of course, uh, Bertie O'Hearn is no longer a member of the Fianna Fáil party. He is not. Yeah, he isn't a member. But sorry, just on that, if it was criminal conduct in question... And corruption is a criminal offence, as far as I know. Why did we have the tribunal? Why didn't we let the guards investigate this, pass this on to the DPP, and prosecute these people through, through the it's, courts? Well, because if they've been harder. found guilty in courts, it, it'd be harder. But if they've been found guilty in courts, they would have absolutely no political career. I don't think you can run for public office if you've been found guilty. It is a bit offense. of a... The white-collar crime thing and corruption, I guess people sort of put up with it more. But, you know, people get sent to prison for like stealing out of a cash register you know a thousand euro out of some random cash register whereas you know these people essentially appropriated which basically means stole public funds or donations to political parties for their own use and 
they're walking scot-free. You could say stealing from a cash register is a crime against the person who owns the money in the cash register. Stealing from public funds or betraying the public is a crime against everybody. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, 23 cents of, you know, your can of Coke goes to the state. So somebody, somebody is stealing that, then it's ridiculous. We just don't see, we don't have the same connection to the taxes we pay and the money that is spent. Well, look, ultimately there was some form of poetic or political justice in so far as the manner in which Fianna Fáil managed the uh, the country's affairs uh, financially. Surely justice in the court of public appeal is just as valid as justice in front of a tribunal or in front of the courts. And it seems that as a country, collectively, we have a relatively short memory. That's the end of this episode of Legally Fond. Thank you for listening. Just want to announce our winner of our contract law textbook with thanks to Claris Press. Well done to Claire Fagan. We've got another book to give away. Just head to our Instagram, legally underscore fond, and you'll be able to enter from there. And don't forget, as we are in exam season at the moment, you might find yourself needing to buy a textbook. You can get 10% off on the Claris Press website. Just use our discount code. It's legally fond. (laughs) 